Hi, and thank you for listening in to the New Song Podcast from this week's service. You are welcome and encouraged to join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in person. And for more information on how to get involved with New Song, go to newsonglouisville.org and follow us on social media. And now for today's message. Amen. Well, I'm excited today to share a little bit of a different type of message with you. Sometimes, uh, I don't know about you, but I I love studying biblical archaeology, biblical history. It helps enlighten and bring things to the surface in the Word that maybe you wouldn't understand or see. And this morning, I want to spend some time together talking to you about this, the whole concept of praying together with power and authority. I, I was, have been so deeply blessed this past week. I was here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, praying and seeking the Lord. And there was a group of people that were pretty consistent this week coming out and joining in prayer. And I, I just, my heart just um, was really elated by that, really touched by that. There's something about praying together that's so powerful that sometimes we lose sight of. So, This morning, I really want to hone in on just the concept of how important it is that we understand that God has called us to pray as a church together. So, you know, there's different types of prayer. There's conversation with God. That would be kind of the first type of prayer that would come to mind for most people, talking to God, sharing your requests. There's petition type prayer. There's what we would call supplication and coming and making your request with thanksgiving to God. There's intercession. There's crying out to God for others. There's confession where we're bringing our sins before the Lord and even the sins of our nation there's, there's um, spiritual warfare type prayer where we're commanding, where we're declaring. In the Bible, there's times to shout for the walls to fall down. And there's prayer that binds and looses. And this morning, I, I want to say to us that understanding different types of prayer helps us. It gives us, if you will, different tools in our toolbox So if you're a carpenter and the only tool you have is a hammer, then guess what? Everything pretty much looks like a nail, right? And you just beat on everything, right? And who would want a carpenter to build anything that all they had was a hammer? It makes a lot of sense for a carpenter also to have a saw because then he can cut things, okay? He doesn't just beat things, he cuts things, he can build things. Would help be helpful for a carpenter to have a screwdriver, to have a lot of different tools in the toolbox to be able to complete a project. It's the same thing with prayer. We've got to understand that one type of prayer will take you so far, but understanding different types of prayer takes you much further, so last week we talked about, and I want to I mention that we, we talked about, I'm going to skip a couple slides here real quick, but we talked about last week in Mark chapter 9, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. There's this combining together of prayer and fasting that is an incredibly important, important aspect of prayer. And... Um, There's something that happens when we pray and fast together, something very powerful that happens. Four types of fasts, by the way, complete, selective, partial, or a soul fast. I'm encouraging everybody here to be a part in some way, shape, or form in the fast together with us. So we're talking about praying together with power and authority. I want us to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19 are going to give us a a really interesting picture of some things about prayer that hopefully will enlighten us, encourage us, and empower us in this quest to learn how to pray. So would you just take a moment with me? Let's, Let's bow our heads and let's just pray right now. Father, In the precious name of Jesus, just, just like the disciples long ago who saw Jesus in prayer and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, we, we just all come today saying, God, we, we want to be people of prayer, but we need your help. 
We need you to teach us. We need you to help us. We need you to show us, to even give us revelation from your heart on what it really means to be people of prayer. Help us, God, that our, our prayer arsenal, our prayer toolbox would expand and grow and we would be equipped and ready to fight the good fight of faith through prayer. Lord, speak to us today in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Five powerful words I want to focus on today out of the Matthew chapter 16 passage. Five powerful words. And the first one is simply going to be the word revelation. The word revelation. It's very interesting. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. It says, The Lord, or when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Everybody say with me, Caesarea Philippi. Interesting place, and just hold that thought. We're going to get back to it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, it's really interesting here because what ends up happening in this passage, and it's one of the most powerful moments in the Gospels, is that God gives Peter a revelation. Jesus asked his disciples this question, and let me just say, whenever God asks a question, he probably wants to give you a revelation. Okay, have you ever thought about that? When God asks a question, when he asks you a question, he's about to reveal something to you that you couldn't necessarily know on your own. And this question, who is Jesus? Who do people say I am? Is arguably the most important question that any of us will ever answer in this life. Who is Jesus? And by the way, you have to know who he is, understand who he is before you know how to truly respond to him in this life. Peter answers so powerfully because it's revealed to him and Jesus confirms that. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And an interesting thing happens here, and I want you to notice it. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls Peter Simon, son of Jonah. Did you know that? Only time he ever uses that name for Peter. Simon, son of Jonah. It's interesting because if you go earlier in the chapter of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, it says, One day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And he replied, You know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in that same situation, just earlier in the day, Jesus has talked about the sign of the prophet Jonah. It says, then Jesus left them and went away. No miraculous sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Let's take a minute and think about that. Jonah didn't obey God. Jonah ran from God. Jonah was eventually swallowed by a what? Whale. By a whale. He spent how long in the belly of that whale? Anybody remember? Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Jonah 2 says he went down into the depths of the grave. Jonah chapter 2, here's a couple portions. I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead. You threw me into the ocean depths. I sank down to the very heart of the sea. 
I sank beneath the waves. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. But you, Lord, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord and in my earnest prayer went to you in your holy temple. So Jonah's experience was a type of Jesus' death and resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? What Jonah went through very much looks like, just like what Jesus went through. Death and resurrection, three days, three nights, what Jesus was going to do. Jonah basically sets an example or is a type, as we would call it, of what Jesus was going to do for all mankind. What happened after Jonah was delivered from death, by the way? The city of Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities of the day, repented before God and uh, had a turnaround, right? And it's interesting because I believe Jesus calls Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, because he's about to talk about not only his death and his resurrection, but he's also going to talk about the power of prayer. So, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So what is revelation, by the way? What is revelation? Let's look at a basic definition for revelation. God imparts knowledge, wisdom, and discernment that cannot be attained by natural human reasoning. Now, as we talk about prayer Let me just say to you, prayer is not meant to be a one-way conversation. If you're really praying and you're really communing with God, you've got to leave time to listen to God. Sometimes we do ourselves such a disservice by just scheduling five minutes in prayer and we just go through our little prayer list And then we don't leave any time for God to speak to our hearts. Can I say to you that one of the most important facets of personal prayer is listening? Yeah, pour your heart out to God. Pour out your needs. Pour out your your request to God. But then listen. Listen for his voice. Lean in. Have your ears attuned to his spirit so that he might impart knowledge, wisdom, and discernment that cannot be attained by natural human reasoning. He'll speak to you. He'll give you answers to the problems you're facing. He'll give you wisdom for solutions to situations. He'll help you in a myriad of ways if you will just listen. He wants to show you things you don't currently know. That's revelation. I remember... Long ago here in the life of this church, we started the church in a little rental home and we grew to the place that we just, we were just jammed in that rental home and we needed a new place. And then we went to a school and we were in a school for six years and we called it church in a box and it was tough, you know, every single week, every single week for six years, rain, snow, shine, sleet, it didn't matter what the weather was, if it was nine degrees out there like today, there was a big team of us with uh, vans and trailers loading in and setting up the whole church. We called it church in a box. And I'll never forget after six years of doing this and crying out to the Lord, one day I'm sitting in my bathroom, it was my little prayer spot, right? I closed the door had a little heater in there, and I just sit in the floor of my bathroom and seek the Lord. Then I'll never forget, I'm praying, and the Lord begins to speak to me, and he said this to me. This year, I'm going to give you a home, and I'm going to give the church a home. And um, I don't even remember if I was even praying about those things, but that word just came through in my heart so clearly 
I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give the church a home. I remember sharing it with my wife and just telling her, honey, I think, I think the Lord spoke to me today. I was praying and he spoke to me. I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give the church a home. And don't you know that year, that year, both of those things happened. And they were both miraculous. Let me just say that. We had, we had no down payment for a home. We had not been able to find any place for the church. And that year, God opened the doors and both things happened. Prayer is all about making time to listen to God. Have you ever read the Word? Let me ask you a question here this morning. Have you ever been reading the Word and suddenly words jump off the page at you? Words that maybe you've read a dozen times before, but now all of a sudden, those words just had life in them, and suddenly they're speaking to your heart in a fresh new way. That's revelation. God reveals things to his children. Even when he reveals things to you, it's still going to take faith to act on it. Amen? You'll still need faith to act and to move. But he's told you enough in Revelation, if you'll listen, for you to act and move and be obedient. Revelation. Second is this, is an illustration, an illustration in our passage today. Matthew 16, 18, it says, And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, Petra, uh, you're Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So we have this amazing confession that God has revealed to Peter and Peter has declared. And now Jesus makes this incredibly powerful and important statement. I tell you, you're Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's a bit of a play on words here. Petros literally means just a small little stone. You, you could even say a pebble. Just a small little stone. You're Peter, a small little stone. But on this Petra, this big ginormous rock, I'm going to build my church. So what is Jesus saying here? If you come from a Catholic background, you believe that that is the foundation for what we would call papal succession, right? That Peter becomes, so to speak, the first pope of the church. And then there's been a papal succession of popes ever since. If you're, if you're Protestant, you believe that what Jesus is saying is that Petra is not Peter because he uses a different word there, but the, this rock, the Petra that he's talking about is the confession that Peter made. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That will be the foundation of the building of the church. I want to suggest to you today another possibility. Another possibility. Are you open to hearing another possibility here this morning? Not trying to do anything, anything outside the bounds here. But I just want to suggest to you that Jesus might have been giving Peter and the disciples a really powerful illustration that's worth looking at and considering here this morning. Because this whole passage occurs in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Remember I said, keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. It's an interesting place. It's the only time that Jesus and the disciples went to Caesarea Philippi. It's interesting because in, in Jewish history, rabbis would not go to Caesarea Philippi. They refused to go there. This is a worldly place. This is a wicked place. This is a place, quite honestly, that, that is uh, kind of the center of a lot of Roman worship, pantheistic worship, okay? There's a temple there to the god Pan in the Roman religion. It's, it's, uh, Pan's a pretty twisted character, believe me, in history, there's uh, in, inscriptions and there's pictures on, on, uh, on a particular place that show Pan in some lurid acts with animals. And, and, and this would happen as a part of the worship that would occur there. It's a dark place, a spiritually dark city. And Jesus not only goes there, he takes his disciples with him. Why would Jesus choose? This is the farthest north Jesus went, by the way, in his journey. This is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. I believe he wanted to give them a powerful illustration 
that I want to share with you this morning. So let me go back in my slides here. I got to find my right slide. First of all, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this giant rock there. I mean a really big, significant rock. Anybody see the rock here in the picture? So a lot of people believe, in fact, Josephus, the historian, believe this is the headwaters of the Jordan River. You can see the, the waterfall here and the water's coming out from underneath this rock. It's a huge, huge rock. Jesus has taken the disciples here for some reason. In fact, some scholars debate, why did he even go there? I want to show you why I think he went there. I think he's giving us a really vivid illustration. So, it's a giant rock. By the way, inside this rock, there's all kinds of shrines. If you could see up close, you would see all kinds of shrines, creches, and, and inscriptions to foreign gods. It's very interesting what you would find there. There were temples, beautiful temples built by the Romans there to worship Pan and other pagan deities. But let's go back to the bigger picture here real quick. By the way, Pan's a fertility god, very wicked, very perverted. He's kind of the, the alternative, if you will, to Baal. And um, there's also in the rock a huge hole. Anybody notice that? There's this huge hole. It is quite massive. And there is a pit on the other side of that hole. Even Josephus, the historian, says that it is a, a very precipitous cliff on the other side of that and a, a hole that was so deep that in the early days they would try to measure it with cordage and they could never reach the bottom. This was an interesting place to the ancients. This huge hole in the rock was known in the ancient world as the Gate of Hades. The gates of Hades. When Jesus talks about the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, this is the picture that the early believers had in mind. This is the gates of Hades. They believed this was the opening to the underworld. Hades in Roman beliefs would be the realm of the dead. In Jewish belief, there's a realm of the dead that's called Sheol. Maybe you've run across that in your Bible reading. Sheol. Jonah says, from Sheol, I cried out to you. It's the realm of the dead. And in Jewish belief, Sheol was divided into two separate places. There's the realm of the wicked dead called Hades. And then there's the realm of the righteous dead called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And you'll run across that in scripture. Remember when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So by the way, when Jesus dies, um, he doesn't just lay in the grave for three days. Jesus is quite busy during that time. The Bible tells us. That when he died, he didn't just lay there, he was quite busy. He descended, the Bible says, into Sheol, and he went to both sides of Sheol. He went to the place of the righteous dead, and it says there he set all the captives free. He took them all, David and Joseph and all the patriarchs, and he took them to heaven. He emptied out the realm of the righteous dead known as paradise. He also went, by the way, and preached in the realm of the wicked dead and proclaimed his victory. Revelation 9 says that there are chained beasts in that place. Jesus proclaimed his victory to the realm of the wicked dead and took, it says, from Satan... The keys to hell, death, and the grave. Yes. Revelation 1.18. Revelation 1.18 says this. I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's a good place for an amen right there, church. Come on. <laughs> Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that all of this is tied up in the imagery of where the disciples are and what Jesus is teaching them. Let's take it a step further. Hades is not just 
a place in Roman theology. Hades was also one of the three main gods in the pantheon of Roman gods. There was Jupiter, he's the head of the Roman gods. There was Neptune, the god of the seas, and then there was Hades, the god of the region of the dead. Hades was a place and a person in Roman theology. By the way, hell, as we know it in the Bible, was a place created for the devil and his angels. It's not quite open for business yet. Someday people will be moved from Hades into hell, the Bible tells us. You can study that. But Jesus says to Peter, you're a little stone, Peter, but on this stone, and Jesus, by the way, he's right there. I tend to think he may have been referring in some way, shape, or form to this place of wickedness, to this place of incredible darkness, because Jesus doesn't just build his kingdom in nice places. He builds his kingdom on the dark and the wicked places of the earth. And he says, even the powers of darkness cannot stop my kingdom from coming. Hell will not be able to stand against you folks, Jesus says. I will build my church. He's standing in front of this massive rock. Who do you say I am? I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. This becomes an illustration, if you will, for the disciples there in Caesarea Philippi. It's pretty important to understand that place and what Jesus is saying. Third comes an explanation an explanation, and uh, let me find my slide here. Got to find my my right slide. Here we go. Third is an explanation. Matthew sixteen eighteen says, "I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it." How does Jesus build his church? Church, by the way, is the word ekklesia. You've probably heard that. It's, it's two words. It's a compound word, ek in Greek, out of, klesis, a calling or called out ones, separated ones, holy ones or assembled ones or a gathering of people is basically what ekklesia means. But there's also another meaning. In Greco-Roman times, there was another meaning to ekklesia. They would have understood ecclesia to be a ruling or governing body, a lot like our Senate today in the United States, if you would. Here's what Jesus is saying. See that big rock over there, that one we just showed you on the screen? See that big rock? Peter, you're just a little stone, but I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to build it out of a, a ruling, governing authority of people who are called out in my name to make a difference. And my people, my gathering of people, my ecclesia are going to be so strong that the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. By the way, the gates, and you probably already know this, but the place where business was done in the ancient world for many cities is at the gates. The elders would sit at the gate so that when people came in and out of the city, we read about this today with Hamor, Hamor and Shechem, that they would come in and out of the gates and, and, and they would be told things as they were entering and, and leaving. And, and it's interesting, when Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he does it at the city gates. The, city, the gates are offensive and defensive and, and they're a place of business and they're the center of culture in a sense. Many times there were two sets of gates. The second is where they would defend the city from attack if people had gotten through the first gate. But Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. He's doing it right here at this very place called the gates of hell. Why is he doing that? The next word is authorization. Authorization. Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to show you how to dismantle in prayer demonic powers and demonic authority. And this is really important, folks. A lot of people, quite honestly, in the world today that don't even believe in the devil. And by the way, that's good news for the devil, right? He loves that. 
he celebrates that fact. Then there's, then there's those that just believe he's like a cartoon figure, right, in, in red tights and with a pitchfork. He probably loves that even more because he is a considerable uh, force of darkness. And I don't know about you, but I see him at work in the world largely today. The Bible calls him the God of this world. There's spiritual warfare, folks. There's spiritual warfare. And by the way, could I just say it's the most important type of warfare because spiritual realities last forever. Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. A lot of people think their battle is with people or circumstances or situations. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form, please don't mishear me, that there's a demon every, under every bush. I don't believe that. But let me just say, the Bible says your troubles come from three places. Your troubles, my troubles, your challenges, my challenges come from one of three places. A sin-cursed world. You're going to have trials and tribulations, the Bible says, in this sin-cursed world. The flesh, our own human sinful desires that lead us down the wrong path. And number three, the devil. There are some things that are straight up demonically inspired stuff. The power of darkness, strongholds in people's lives where wrong thinking and wrong choices have led to a stronghold that's been built up in your life. And by the way, if you have a stronghold, it's going to assault you and eventually seek to have control over you unless you see it for what it is and you begin to walk in the victory that Jesus has given us. I listened to something this week that really, wow, shook me. How many of you guys remember the, the wonderful um, radio broadcaster, Paul Harvey? You remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story? I know we're really dating ourselves. Everybody under 40 is probably not going to raise their hand on that one. I think Paul Harvey is the second most popular radio person next to Rush Limbaugh. That's what I used to hear. Anyway, he was the most popular have you listened lately to the little broadcast from Paul Harvey, If I Were the Devil? I'm not going to play it for you here this morning, but it was recorded in 1965. And let me just say, it is, it is prophetically so accurate, you would just about fall out of your chair if you listened to it. If you'll listen to it with some insight and, and think about what he's saying, it's amazing how prophetically accurate it is. Now, I was born in 1964, so in 1965, I was one year old. So I grew up, you know, after that time. One of the things he talks about is that schools are going to require drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors. Now, I don't know about you, but my, my whole growing up years, we didn't have anything like that. But this is 1965, Paul Harvey saying, that's going to end up happening. I think the Lord might have been speaking to him about some of the things that were to come. There's a real enemy, and he's at work, and you and I need to know how to fight against him. Amen? You can throw money at things all day long, and it won't make a difference, just like our government does. Amen? Our government throws more and more and more money into the school system, and yet things are absolutely out of control, and there never seems to be a way to turn things around. Let me just say this. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. Spiritual problems require praying with spiritual insight. Notice here in our passage, Jesus wants to give us keys. What are keys? And notice, by the way, it's plural. Honey, do, do you have a set of keys there I can borrow real quick? Pull out a set of keys. Notice it's plural, keys. What are keys? I'm going to say to you today that, that just, just for simplicity's sake, keys are insight or keys are knowledge. This is my wife's keys. Uh, it's a second set that she carries. And one of these keys opens our house, right? This is, I think, our house key right here. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, go to my house, pop that in the lock, turn it, and it'll open the door. This key over here is the key to the church, right? Put it in the lock, turn it, it opens the church door. 
But let me just say this. If I take the church key and try to open my house door, it doesn't work. There's certain keys for certain locks for certain situations. There's certain prayer to be prayed in certain ways for certain situations. You don't just use a hammer and make everything look like a nail, right? right. You need a saw. You need, you need other things in your arsenal of prayer. Jesus is saying, I want to give you keys. It's plural. Keys is the knowledge or the key to knowing how to do something. Joshua. Remember Joshua in the Old Testament? He wants to take the city of Jericho. An angel of the Lord appears to Joshua. Some would say that's a, a Christophany, an epiphany that Jesus is showing up as the angel of the Lord, giving Joshua keys on how to take this mighty city of Jericho. God says to Joshua, here's what I want you to do, Josh. I want you to take the people and march around the city one time and then go home, call it a day. Next day, go and do it again. Seventh day, do it seven times and then shout. Wow, what a strategy, huh? That's an unusual one. I don't think I would have came up with that. How about you? But God was giving him the keys and on the seventh day when he shouted, what happened? The walls came falling down. By the way, there's archaeological evidence today that seems to point to that very thing in Jericho. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Let me tell you a quick story. This is a real story. So I have some dear friends now, Mike and Stacy Collins, who live in Arusha, Tanzania. There are four square missionaries in East Africa, over all of East Africa. And I was with Mike and Stacy in uh, two years ago. Great couple, amazing couple. Stacy Collins is an amazing lady. When she was 22 years old, God spoke to her and she uprooted her life and moved to the jungles of the Congo. As a single young lady, she joined a mission base there that, that had been built there, and there was a primary missionary, and he had a Bible school there, and they had a compound, and Stacy taught in his Bible school, and she's an amazing gal. She knows Swahili so well. I heard some of the Africans say to her, you know Swahili better than I do. I mean, she's an amazing gal. So... They're, they're in this compound, they're teaching, they've got a, a flourishing ministry, and one day, one of the Congolese men who worked in the local government started to oppose them. And his position gave him the right to be able to do some very corrupt things against the mission training base. And he decided he was going to sell parts of their property, even within their compound. And he sells a piece of their property to the colonel of the Congolese army. The colonel comes into their missions compound, builds a house in the midst of their missions compound. The main missionary says, well, I guess we're just going to have to leave, give our property up, and go find another place. And as he was preparing to do that, the Lord spoke to him, gave him revelation. Again, listen when you're praying. The Lord says, no, I gave this to you. I want you to fight for it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather the whole mission base and I want you to march around the property just like Joshua did. Well, the first day, he gets all the staff and they go and they march around the property and on the edges of the property, there's, there's all kinds of Congolese people there in the jungle and, and they call a white person a Mazungo and they start making fun. Ah, the Mazungo, look at the Mazungo around the property, the Mazungo, and they laugh at him. Next day they go out, they circle again, they laugh at him. Next day they, they laugh at him. Didn't matter. They kept doing it on the seventh day. They circle the property seven times. Later that day, and they shout. Later that day, they find out that that corrupt government official had taken a train and was on a trip to another place in the Congo when suddenly he fell dead. Let me just say, 
If you're in the awe of God class, this is one of those moments where the fear of God captures people's attention. That colonel, the colonel in the army, he got so afraid, he says, I'm giving you guys back that house. I'm moving away. I don't want anything to do with the mission base. I don't want to interrupt what you guys are doing. The missionary, the main missionary, who was a righteous and good and godly man, said, no, listen, we're going to pay you for everything you invested in that house. We'll pay you. So you know what God did? God knit their hearts together. And you know what happened in the future? This is such a cool story. If you know anything about the Congo, there's been mass war there. There was more people killed in Congo II war than any other war other than World War II. When times got tough and there were opportunities for that mission base to be raided and for horrific things to happen, that colonel stood up and defended that mission base. Can you give the Lord praise for that? Is that awesome or what? It's a true story. Absolutely true story. Maybe we'll get Mike and Stacy here one day to share that with you. David, King David has many victories in battle. But if you'll notice as you're reading them, he asks the Lord for the keys, right? In fact, he ends up in trouble when he doesn't ask the Lord. He says, you know, Lord, how do you want me to attack the enemy this time? And one of the times God says, well, I want you to wait until you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees. What? What, what is that? It's a key to victory is what it is. It's the way God's going to do it this time. This past Friday, I told you, I've just been blessed by gathering here with, with a number of our people here at New Song. We've been, oh, having eight, nine people out each morning. It's just been precious. I'm back there praying on my knees, and, and the Lord starts to tell me to shift the way I've been praying over my family. And I'm like, okay, okay, Lord, I don't understand it, but I'm going to do it. It takes faith to put the key in. It takes faith to turn the key. It takes faith to trust that the key is going to open the door. Amen? God says to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, I don't want you to fight this army, this massive army of over a million that's marching against you. I want you to send the worshipers out. What? What kind of strategy is that? It's a key. It's a key. And guess what happens? The enemy turns on itself. So let's talk this morning just briefly. We're going to wrap up here real quick. Let's talk about binding and loosing. Let's talk about binding and loosing. Very important. Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Can I just say to you, it kind of started with the King James, but I don't think this translation of this verse gives us the clarity that we need to truly understand what Jesus is saying here. Here's another translation that I think helps us understand it better. I solemnly say to you, whatever you forbid on earth must already be must be already forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth must already be permitted in heaven so I want you to see that because sometimes we get confused on this whole binding and loosing thing, right? You, you and I just don't get to freewheel around and, and, and bind whatever we want and loose whatever we want. No, 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 no. There's some guidelines here that are very, very important for us to understand. To bind in rabbinical language, by the way, means to forbid and to loose means to permit, to permit. So uh, this isn't, you know, well, heaven just has to go along with whatever I bind and with whatever I loose. No, no, no. That's not what the verse means. It's not you and I telling heaven what to do. It's understanding, if you will, what's already bound in heaven and what's not permitted in heaven and binding it or not permitting it here on earth. Does that make sense? Or it's loosing here on earth what's already loosed in heaven. And that's key, folks. Can I just say to you, in heaven, the battle's already been won. Yes. Matthew 6.10. Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Some, some translators would say that's not just a prayer. It's, it's actually the way the, 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 the Greek verb tenses are phrased. It's a declaration. You could pray it this way. Kingdom of God, come. Will of God be done. So let's talk about prayer here. Whatever in, is in heaven, would you agree this morning, whatever is in heaven is already God's will. Would you agree with that? Come on, church. How many of you voting this morning? So God wants us to pray for what is in heaven to be here on earth. Does that make sense? Well, I, I, you know, sometimes we come to prayer and we're, oh, I just don't know what to pray. I just don't know how to pray. I mean, I just don't know what God's will is. Let's solve that problem once and for all right here this morning, folks. Let's solve that problem. Is that problem in heaven? It's a good question to ask. Is that problem in heaven? Let, let's look at it this way. Is there sickness in heaven? Is there uh, relational disunity and dissension in heaven? Is there sorrow and depression in heaven? All right. So that should give us some insight into how to pray. What's the answer? On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Is there... Relational friction in heaven? No. In Jesus' name, I bind relational friction in that marriage on earth as it is in heaven. I bind that rebellion in the name of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, we can loose in prayer, right? I loose the peace of God into that situation. I loose the joy of the Lord to combat and drive out that depression. I loose favor and blessings on you, church, in Jesus' name. If it's not allowed in heaven, we should pray against it on earth. That'll change the way you pray. Amen? That will give you and I insight to know how to begin to align your prayers with the things of heaven. Paul says this, you and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So let's live like it and let's pray like it. Amen? Jesus has authorized us to attack the enemy's domain here on this earth by binding and loosing. Some of us are so busy using earthly keys that we haven't even considered using our heavenly keys. Let's use the authority God's given us in prayer. One last thing, exhortation, exhortation. We're going to look at another passage real quick. Matthew 18, 18. Okay, hang on. We're, we're, we're just about to close. Exact same words as in Matthew 16. Exact same words. He's going to repeat them, but there's something important here for you to notice. How big does this ruling ecclesia this ruling council, if you will, how big does it have to be to really bring forth God's kingdom on this earth, to really see answers to prayer and breakthroughs? This is going to give us how big that group needs to be, okay? I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is important, really important. It's being repeated again by Jesus. Again, I tell you that if two of you of two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Amen. By the way, let me just point out, that rules out a church of one, amen? There is no church of one. We need each other, and God designed it that way. There's some things in prayer, just like we've said. Some things are only going to come out through prayer and fasting. Some things are going to only happen when you agree together with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
This is, this is one of those things, it's a pride breaker, I know that, because some of us want to be so independent and want to keep things to ourselves and we don't like bothering others and et cetera, et cetera, whatever. But there are times in your life where when the enemy's attacking, you need to find one or two close brothers or sisters in Christ and say, pray with me, the enemy's coming against me and I need victory in Jesus' name. And when there's agreement Symphono, that agreement, just like a symphony in prayer. When two or three agree, Jesus says, I'll do it. That's why prayer gatherings are absolutely essential, folks. When we agree together, there's power. Bible says one can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. I don't know about you, but when I read that first, I thought, one can chase a thousand, two will chase two thousand, right? No, one will chase 1,000, two will chase 10,000. There's an exponential increase when we come together in unity, in prayer. This is why prayer gatherings are so important. There's power in agreement in prayer. Some of us are too spiritually independent. We need other people involved in our lives, praying along with us. That's why life groups and small groups and prayer gatherings are so important and always will be important part of this church. God designed it that way. Can I just say to you, church, there's battles to win in 2024 through praying together. And if we do, the gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord's church. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads? Go ahead and give the Lord praise. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, thank you for power in prayer. Thank you for authority in prayer. Thank you for the, the authority, the keys to be able to bind and loose in Jesus' name. To bring heaven to earth, to declare what's in heaven to be manifested here on the earth. What's bound in heaven to be bound here on the earth. What's free and abundant in heaven to be loosed here on the earth. May your kingdom come and your will be done as we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and pray and believe together for breakthroughs in this year. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 Would you stand with me today? Yes. Hallelujah. Lord, go with us now. Let your face shine upon us and your light shine through us in Jesus' name. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.